You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 46, Testosterone. Today on Minding the Brain, we're talking to Carol Hooven, author of the new book, T, The Story of Testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us. During the course of the episode, Jim and Carol discuss the role of testosterone in physical sex differences and how an evolutionary framework explains sex differences in aggression, sexual behavior, and much more. We hope you enjoy this fascinating look into the world of testosterone. Hi, Carol. Welcome. Hi, Jim. Thank you for having me. So let's get started with sexual dimorphism, which is when the bodies of males and females in a species are different. Now, does sexual dimorphism, does it also include behaviors or is it just a word that, you know, responds to the bodies of males and females? I was just going to ask you if your definition of sexual dimorphism also included behavior. And I think the fact that I was going to ask you that (laughs) question uh, shows that people use that word in different ways. I think people most often use it to mean differences between the sexes in body, uh, but it could also be in something like voice. I was just thinking about how important voice differences are in male and female humans and in many other animals. Voice is incredibly important, especially males having louder, deeper voices or more complicated songs, as uh, in the case in birds. And I would call that a physical dimorphism. Right. But but like the way biologists do it, would they like call a bowerbird's bower? or a sexually dimorphic trait, do you think? I would say so. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that behavior fairly falls under the term sexual dimorphism. It doesn't have to be confined to just uh, physical traits. Right. So we're going to talk about sexual dimorphism being the differences between males and females within a species. And we're not just talking about humans at this point, although we will later, um, how they're different. Um, and usually that we're usually referring to those, those differences that are not culturally uh, generated. Uh, so what are what are some of the reliable species level factors that predict sexual dimorphism? Meaning like if you look at a bunch of species, are there things you can say, oh, this species has this trait. So we would expect sexual dimorphism? Yeah, there are some reliable predictors. And these predictors stem from the differences in the way within a given species that males and females tend to maximize their reproductive success. So that would be roughly the number of offspring they're able to produce over a lifetime. There's other ways of defining that. and um, But that's kind of the simplest definition. So if you think about how that works, in many species, females must, uh, in order for their offspring to survive, invest a far greater amount of time and energy into the production of and nurturing of their offspring, where the males in many species, and particularly the case in mammals, and humans are obviously mammals, uh, males can do in many cases quite well simply by donating sperm. So the minimum reproductive investment for a male mammal in many cases could be 
uh, simply sperm, where the minimum reproductive investment for the female absolutely has to be the uh, huge amount of time and energy that she puts into where, you know, she's using her body to grow and nurture the offspring, which, of course, in humans can take, you know, at minimum nine months. And then generally, uh, at least from a evolutionary point of view, and in still in uh, natural fertility societies, uh, breastfeeding would go on for, you know, up to four and sometimes even five years. So there's a mm -hmm. massive investment of time and energy that is required on the part of the female. And that same investment is not required on the part of male of males. And so sexual dimorphism generally arises through the evolutionary force of sexual selection. And sexual selection differs from natural selection in that sexual selection tends to promote the evolution of traits that advantage reproductive success. And natural selection just broadly is more concerned with survival. So of course, you have to survive at least to reproductive maturity in order to reproduce produce. But what's really interesting about sexual selection is that is the way the effects of sexual selection manifest differently in different sexes in species where there are large differences in the strategies that males and females can use to maximize reproductive success. So that means that male and female humans have almost uh, identical genes. There are very few differences between us. So you might wonder, well, if selection is acting on females to say, to reduce body size, overall body size relative to males, or if it's acting on males to increase traits that allow them to be successful competitors, like many other mammals, where males are competing for female mating opportunities, because males can, relative to females, increase their reproductive success by increasing the number of mates. Females do not necessarily and often um, most often do not benefit reproductively from increasing the number of mates. So in order for many males to increase their number of mates, they would, they need to be successful competitors against other males for those mates. And in many species and many, depending on the environment, that competition can require physical aggression. So selection would then act on males to increase body size, increase muscle mass, increase demonstrations of size and muscle mass and strength and power, which would be something like deepening the voice, having a loud roar or, a, you know, sort of like I can deepen my voice like this and I might sound, you know, a little more <laughs> threatening or do domineering or something. And what's interesting is it's not that males and females have different genes. It's that what sexual selection has done is resulted in the in the in males having higher levels of testosterone and it is testosterone that then allows the development of those traits that facilitate mating competition so it's not different genes per se um, females are capable of producing high levels of testosterone under extremely unusual circumstances. Um, but it's not a huge suite, I should say, of different genes 
that uh, enable males to develop the secondary sex sex traits that they have. So secondary right. sexual characteristics are those that are not to do with uh, primary reproductive structures like a penis or um, testicles or uterus or vagina. It's the traits that develop at puberty. And that's where those are the traits that develop under the influence of sex hormones. So females will develop more body fat, narrow or waist, uh, wider hips, etc., under the influence of estrogen, and males will develop a larger body size and a deeper voice and body hair and more muscles and greater strength and power under the influence of testosterone. So it is the sex hormones that are setting each sex up to spend energy in ways that would tend or have tended over human evolutionary history to maximize reproduction in ways that benefit each sex's um, strategies or, you know, promote the strategies that are most beneficial for each sex. So in your book, you describe how testosterone is a large factor in sexual dimorphism. And w one thing that's really impressive about your book is that you bring together many sources of evidence that converge on this. But let's talk about each one. W where do you want to start? Sure. I think the interesting place to start, because the main question that my book addresses are two big questions, and they're about behavior. And they're about the, the questions that I'm raising and uh, answering, and I'm arguing that testosterone is the most important factor in explaining sex differences in aggression and sexual behavior, and that there are uh, large sex differences in humans in, in both of these um, aspects of behavior. So I'm happy to start with either one of those, and I would consider those uh, sexually dimorphic traits. Roughly, there's huge amount of overlap in those traits, but I would say they're still sexually dimorphic because there are still large differences um, in the expression of those behaviors between the sexes. Let's Let's talk about the testosterone differences between men and women because I think there, there are some people out there who downplay the differences in testosterone levels in men and women. And so why don't you tell us, are the, are the differences large? Yes. <laughs> the differences are large. <laughs> um, one reason that this is complicated, so if we just stick with humans in their, in the, in their reproductive prime, so say, you know, 18 to 40, basically, and males obviously can continue, are, are fertile up, up until, you know, into their 90s, uh, but their overall ability to produce offspring for various reasons is, is significant reduced. Um, but if you just look at healthy humans between, say, 18 and 45, there are whopping differences in testosterone level. There are non-overlapping non distributions. And depending on the age, if you're looking at, say, 15 to 25, you're going to have the largest differences between the sexes. You can have 10, men can have something like 10 to up to 30 times uh, the testosterone level of women. And of course, male testosterone is going to decline after about the age of, it totally depends, but around, it can plateau around 25 and then continue uh, on that plateau and then would tend to decline, say, around very slowly over a 
across age around something like 40. But that, I should just start off by saying that is a Western phenomenon. So in many non-industrialized cultures that are not as well nourished and don't have the super high calorie intake that we have um, in Western societies, testosterone levels in men are lower overall and tend in some many cases not to decline uh, much or at all with age. So that's just something to remember because you're going to have different uh, sex differences in testosterone across different societies and, and different ecological conditions. But if we're talking about uh, reproductive age, healthy people in, say, the, you know, China, US, UK, uh, you will have these very large differences from, on average, about uh, men would have about 10 to 20 times more than women. To start. And, and there's two different times where you're going to see these large sex differences. So people, a lot of people don't appreciate that one of the most important, uh, what are called uh, critical periods for testosterone action, it starts in utero at, um, very early in gestation. And then there's another period after birth. There's a sort of a three or four month period after birth where in males, testosterone levels also get very high. And then there's obviously the period of adolescence when testosterone levels uh, go up and then stay relatively high for the rest of the man's lifetime. But in some cases, the there can be overlap um, but that would be if a male has a disorder, uh, either a testicular disorder or a disorder in the hypothalamus pituitary in his brain. And that's the center in sort of the base of the brain that controls testosterone production from the testicles. So if there is a defect in the, a man's ability to produce testosterone, it could be because there's something wrong in the testicles themselves or there's something wrong in the brain, in the hypothalamus or pituitary, in the ability of those parts of the brain to stimulate the testosterone production from the testes. So um, if there's any kind of issue there, then a man could have levels of testosterone in the female range. He could also be taking exogenous testosterone, uh, aka steroids. And when you come off of steroids, a man would need sometimes up to 18 months for his testes to come back online because taking steroids shuts down the testicular production of testosterone. So when a guy stops taking steroids, that whole system has to come back online again. And during that time, his testosterone levels can be very low. And I should just say one other thing. In some studies, there are um, transgender people or simply people who identify as the opposite sex who are included in samples. Uh, so there could be a biological female in a male sample. So you would then say, and some people are arguing that that should in fact, that that's totally legitimate, that we should include uh, people who identify as male, um, regardless of what their biological sex is in the ma male category, so that then uh, you will have a female testosterone, female typical testosterone level count as a male typical um, testosterone level. So there's all, there are many study, there are not many, but there are some studies that use methods of measurement that are unreliable. And um, so especially female testosterone is very difficult to measure. Uh, and you have to use something called mass spectrometry to accurately measure female levels. That is uh, most often it's not used and it inflates female levels. But when you use the most 
rigorous methods to uh, select your sample and test for those levels, and you're testing in healthy, normal populations, you find huge differences with no overlap at all. There's nothing even close to overlap between uh, men and women. Now, everybody's, I think everybody's heard of testosterone and hormones, but I'm not sure everyone knows what they are. Can you just briefly say, you know, what are hormones? How do they work? And about how many are there? Oh, God, how many? Um, yeah, I'll get to the how many. In your book, you say 70. Yeah, that's so I said, oh, God, because I don't really know what's been happening since the book was published. And people don't even agree on that number. There's so many more discovered all the time, especially in the gut. Oh, wow. The gut is full okay. of hormones that have significant actions in our central nervous system, on our brain, and on our behavior. And we're learning more about that every day. And it's fascinating. Um, I don't talk about that in the book. I mostly just talk about testosterone. But it is interesting because this is a theory of mind exercise for people who are endocrinologists. And that means we have to, as an instructor, of course, I have to imagine what do my students know? So of course, I've been studying hormones for so long, I think I know what they are. But I have to remember that most people have no idea what it is. So I have fun Sometimes when I meet people asking them and they ask me what I do or what my book is about and, um, and they'll ask about, um, testosterone and I'll say, well, what do you think it is? And they have no idea. Is this, they don't know where it's produced. They don't know if it's something like a neurotransmitter or, you know, they're like, wow, I never really thought about what testosterone is. It's just something that makes me more powerful or makes me hornier or have a, you know, more solid erection or something. But then they don't really give much thought to the fact that it is a chemical. So there's different kinds of hormones and they can generally be proteins, which are made of amino acids, or they can be derived from cholesterol. The sex steroids are obviously steroids. They're derived from cholesterol. And what's interesting about that, so like insulin, for instance, is a protein hormone. And I'm just going to start with insulin because a lot of people know that insulin is has something to do with blood sugar and and diabetes. So insulin is a protein hormone that made that means it's made up of amino acids. It's basically a string of amino acids um, stuck together. It's made by your pancreas and it regulates how much glucose is in your blood at any given time. So if you eat a bunch of candy, like my son just did for Halloween, then your pancreas will sense that glucose and it will secrete insulin into your blood. And then the insulin interacts with cells in your body, in fat and in muscle, for instance, and it acts on receptors on the cell surface. So this is important. It might sound a little dry, um, but it's important because protein hormones tend to act at the surface of a cell, at the cell membrane. They don't go inside the cell. So insulin would just interact with a receptor that's embedded in the membrane of the cell, and it opens up a little portal so that your glucose can um, go into the cells that need it. And, and use ultimately use that glucose for energy to fuel your cells and fuel your body and give you energy and keep you alive. Okay, so, and that's the pancreas is an endocrine gland. And we have a bunch of different endocrine glands like the testes or the pancreas or the thyroid or the adrenals, which you may have heard of. So 
these sex steroids like testosterone are, again, derived from cholesterol produced by the, say, testes and ovaries and adrenal gland. But steroids have this property, which is because they are derived from cholesterol and they're fatty, they can cross right through cell membranes. And they, because they can just flow anywhere in the body, that means they get into our brain. So the protein hormones, when they do get in there, they have to be chaperoned. But the um, sex steroids are just going any, they can go anywhere blood goes and blood goes pretty much everywhere. And they can interact with any cell that ha- that has a receptor. So your brain is full of receptors for estrogen and testosterone. And one thing I didn't say about insulin is that it is in fact chaperoned into your brain and it interacts with appetite centers in your brain so that when blood glucose is high, insulin is also high and it goes into your brain and tells your brain that you have energy coming in to your system and it acts as an appetite suppressant. So insulin is a energetic hormone. It regulates how energy is spent in your body, where it goes, but at the same time as it has these effects on your sort of peripheral energy, it gets into your brain and regulates your psychology and your behavior. So it's coordinating what's going on in your body to help you survive with the behavior to help you survive. If insulin is low, blood sugar is low, and you will be hungry because your brain will sense low insulin. So when you have high testosterone that is in and after puberty, then you will say during puberty, you're going to start making sperm. Testosterone helps you make sperm. It helps the testes make sperm. So just like when glucose is high, you're not hungry, or when glucose is low and insulin is low, at that point you are hungry. When testosterone is high and sperm are being made, you want to have sex. You're looking for for mates. Not all the time, unless you're in puberty, basically, and you're a a man or a young man. So it's doing what hormones do, which is in terms of thinking about hormones and how they shape behavior, they have these effects on keeping us alive, doing things in the body, but also communicating with our brain to help us engage in behaviors that keep us alive. And in terms of the sex hormones, they have all these actions in the body, like all those secondary sex characteristics and reproductive structures that we just talked about, developing those, maintaining those, making sure sperm are being produced. But what good is having sperm and lots of muscle if you have no interest in sex or competing with other men for mating opportunities. It would be no good whatsoever. So testosterone is able to do this incredible work of preparing and maintaining the body in ways that promote reproduction and telling the brain what needs to be done and what behaviors are necessary within any given um, environment. So can do that because it gets into cells and alters the way genes are transcribed into proteins, which means it can have these these um, systemic effects that can take place over the long term and can be very long lasting in a way that protein hormones can't. So that's how hormones work. Yes. And you mentioned puberty, and it really seems like boys, you know, in humans, boys and girls are a lot more alike than uh, adult men and women. So is, what happens at puberty? And does this relate to testosterone? 
I, I know what you're saying, but little boys and girls are very, very different. Okay. There are a lot of other kinds of differences that open up at puberty. So if you watch little boys and girls, um, they play in very different ways. They segregate by sex. They tend to have very different interests overall. What's really interesting about that is that they haven't gone through puberty yet. So how do you explain that? What do hormones have to do with those behaviors? And that is because I would argue, I do argue, um, there are very different hormonal environments in utero and high testosterone is in fact masculinizing the male brain uh, and which that helps to explain differences in disposition and interests and play styles in uh, humans and in non-human animals. And we have a lot of evidence for that. But I can, but then there are, of course, many differences that open up at puberty. And those largely have to do, uh, I would say, are ultimately motivated, again, by these uh, different reproductive strategies and the different kinds of behaviors that each sex ultimately benefits from reproductively. And again, here, there's a huge amount of variance and the I just want to say anytime we're talking about differences in complex behaviors, there's always going to be overlap between the sexes. You make a really good point about boys and girls. You know, and I started thinking about, I was like, okay, well, when they're adults, they're, they always, they go shopping and they they go to work and they, right. <laughs> so maybe they're actually right. more different in behavior when they're boys and girls. But I guess puberty is when the bodies are yes. becoming uh, ready for reproduction. And so I, it would make sense that the different behaviors related to reproduction would sort of amp up. Right. Puberty. Before that, they're just for practice purposes or, or whatever because they can't really reproduce. That's right. And what's interesting about the sex differences in childhood behavior is that boys love rough and tumble play. Again, everything's on average. Tackling each other, trying to pin each other down, congregating in large groups. But the the what really emerges as as the most sort of salient difference is physicality and interact physical interaction with young members of your own sex. Girls typically are not having anywhere near the same amount of sort of low level uh, aggressive, you know, physically aggressive interaction, which boys love and they think it's fun and they laugh their heads off. And what that is in humans and non-human animals is practice for a physical, you know, aggressive competition for status as adults. And we're not doing that so much in humans anymore. So culture, I would say, has, for the most part, tamped down the high levels of aggression that we may have physical aggression, we may, you know, sometimes see in some hunter-gatherers, higher levels of uh, male-male aggression, but which we definitely see in non-human primates, especially among males, which have very high levels of physical competition for status, for mates, And uh, we have, obviously, at the extremes of sex differences and aggression, we see much more physical aggression and violence, of course, in men than we do in women. But yeah, overall, we're very similar, right? We have, like you said, we're... (laughs) taking care of our kids, we're going to work. Um, most men are not physically aggressive at all. So you're not going to see a big sex difference there. But I think what you do see in the average man and woman are differences in sex, um, sexual behavior, sexual interests, sexual psychology. And that that to me is the most salient difference in adults that needs to be explained. So there's this that that's what you see. So I think sex is relevant to the average Joe, but the violence 
difference is not as relevant. Uh, that becomes relevant again at the extremes. And those extremes are, are very, very important, obviously, because there's a lot of sexual violence and it's almost all perpetrated by men. And I should just throw in that culture here is incredibly important. And in some cultures, it is the average Joe who's physically uh, aggressive, especially towards his partner if, if she's a female. You know, getting away from humans, another reason that we think testosterone is important for reproduction in men, males rather, is uh, from other animals. I found your experience with the red deer really fascinating. Can you tell us what you learned about testosterone from the deer? Yeah, you can't see me, but I'm I'm beaming because I love even just <laughs> thinking about that. No, I, I'm just like grinning because I love teaching about red deer. I love reading about red deer. And I did that for a long time before I got to go see them on the Isle of Rum off the coast of Scotland. And I got to go watch this spectacle, which is, to me, sexual se selection playing out on this, you know, grand scale. And I get to see it with my own two eyes. So the Isle of Rum has a long-term study site for researching wild red deer and just all kinds of behavior patterns and aspects of their physiology. And at one point, there was a lot of research on their testosterone. But what's really interesting about red deer is that... Um, they're a polygynous uh, mammal, and the males, there's a lot of sexual, high degree of sexual dimorphism in behavior and uh, in phenotype and in the physicality. And they're seasonal breeders. So a lot of mammals are seasonal breeders. You know, obviously a lot of birds are seasonal breeders. And so what's really interesting about seasonal breeders, which humans are not. So I should just say in humans, when testosterone goes up at puberty in males, it doesn't go down, you know, Know, precipitously anyway, it goes down a bit um, in the summer and then get much higher in the breeding season, which, you know, could be spring or something. So it's not like you're seeing, like in, in females, you we do have cycles of estrogen that go way up and way down. And sometimes you can see changes in the body and behavior, but you don't see something like that in men. Uh, you just see persistently high testosterone, persistently high sex drive and persistently, you know, relatively high levels of uh, physical aggression. But in red deer, there is a breeding season, which is um, happening now, actually. And it's in the fall and testosterone levels are at their peak. So this is when the females are in estrus. So in many animals, males don't bother having high testosterone and being aggressive or having a high libido unless females can get pregnant and they know it. Because uh, otherwise, you don't need to have high testosterone. You don't need to be super competitive. Uh, but if females are available and they are fertile, then that's the time for males to amp up their testosterone, to start making sperm. And what happens in the red deer is that exactly where testosterone levels are suppressed outside of the breeding season. And then as the breeding season approaches, they go through all of these uh, physical changes one of which, of course, is sperm have to be produced. But just like I was saying, it wouldn't, why would sexual selection design an animal to produce sperm and have muscles if there was no desire to use them, if there was no motivation to use them? So in the red deer, when sperm get made, that is when the antlers are also growing. Uh, the antlers fall off when the breeding season is over and testosterone declines. When, uh, in anticipation of the breeding season, the antlers 
antlers start to grow and the velvet comes off when the females are fertile. So the males live together peacefully when their testosterone is low and they don't have antlers and they don't have sperm and the females aren't fertile. But when the breeding season comes, which is called the rut, testosterone levels rise, sperm goes up, antlers are grown, and the males start trying to kill each other. They literally are trying to kill each other and attain, and they want to do that because it's worth it reproductively. Sexual selection selected for these behaviors because the most successful, um, aggressive males who are, are big, have big antlers, and are bold are the ones who can win fights with other males. And when they win a fight, they can accumulate fertile females basically as part of their harem. And if they have a harem, that means to some extent they have exclusive mating rights with those females. Other males will come in and try to uh, mate with those females occasionally, or other males will just try to challenge a dominant male or a harem holder so he could take over some of those females. But this is all a function of testosterone because outside of breeding season, when testosterone's low, there's no harem, there's very low levels of fighting, uh, and there's, you know, peace returns, basically. There, there's low levels of fighting. But uh, it's just very clear that testosterone rises in support of male-male competition and sperm production. And they even, you know, their musculature, their neck muscles grow so they can become better fighters. They roar. Testosterone also promotes this very deep, loud roar, which can intimidate the rivals. What's neat about it is that humans don't have a breeding season. Right. And because male testosterone is high all the time, it's not quite as obvious what testosterone is doing because it doesn't fluctuate quite as much, right? And in humans, we can't even tell when a, when a, a female is ovulating. So we have concealed, it's called concealed ovulation. Yes, Jeff Miller would disagree with you, but... Uh, well, I think there are some studies that are, right. have weak effects of being able to detect ovulating, but they're not strong. Exactly. Like I say, when I teach this in my class, I teach like a class of 300, I, I say to them, well, it's not like I can look out and point, and I point to like four women in the class, you, you, and you <laughs> oh, are ovulating. Like it's, it's not like they have a big red behind or anything, you know? <laughs> But I, I read, as I read your book, I thought about what human society would have been like if, if we didn't have concealed ovulation and men's testosterone like shot up and down and <laughs> fluctuated wildly. You know, certainly men would get the, the reputation for being hormonal. Right, know? exactly, exactly. And we don't see the that men are, you know, in some sense, it's not that they're hormonal, maybe they're hormoned. You know, women always get accused of being, you know, victim to their hormones, but uh, men right. are obviously profoundly affected by their hormones. We just can't see it because it's always that way after puberty. So yeah, I feel kind of um, uh, enslaved by my testosterone to some extent. I'm not, it's not the right word, but like, uh, well, yeah, I, but like I know be. that it affects me. Yeah. The fact that it doesn't vary a lot doesn't mean it's not making me part of who I am for better and worse. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. So uh, another really cool thing where uh, you talk about in your book is the hormone disorders and how they, uh, you know, how do they speak to these ideas about testosterone? You talk about in your book some fascinating conditions uh, that women can get where they have more testosterone than most other women. Uh, you want to tell us about some of those disorders? Sure. In many places, they are called disorders, but they're also um, that language is evolving. Well, this is the way that I, I try to talk about this in the book is if a condition 
causes physical problems and health problems, then I would call it a disorder. And But if it's sort of more, you know, cosmetic or uh, doesn't actually cause any health problems, then the preferred term tends to be difference of uh, sexual development rather than disorder of sexual development. But there's a, a lot of discussion about what's who wants to use what term, but I'll just say DSD because then it could be difference or disorder. And one that is interesting, um, you know, and these are, I, we should just remember there are real people living with these conditions and they can be very, very challenging. And so I want to make sure that we don't just think about these conditions as what they can teach us about testosterone, but also that we remember that these are conditions that, uh, people are living with and, and they need to have their needs met and obviously be treated with sensitivity. So I just want to start out by saying that, but there is a condition called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And this is a condition that um, boys and girls can have. And it's, it's really a disorder of the adrenal glands ability to produce cortisol. And if you're in an environment where there's good medical care, this can be corrected at birth. So what happens in development in utero, if the adrenal gland can't produce enough cortisol, it then instead, it, the adrenal gland is stimulated to produce cortisol. But if it can't produce cortisol, that stimulation causes it to produce high levels of androgens instead. And that's because of a complicated um, conversion pathway from cholesterol getting converted into androgens rather than cortisol. So those fetuses will be exposed to high levels of androgens. And for boys, this seems not to make much of a difference in their behavior or in their reproductive system because they already have high levels of testosterone in utero and adding more to that seems not to have much of an effect. And But for females who have extremely low levels of testosterone exposure in utero, even a little bit of an increase will have an effect, apparently not just on reproductive anatomy, but also on behavior. So one thing is that it is testosterone that uh, promotes the development of a penis from something called the genital tubercle. So we all start out with the genital tubercle, which will become the clitoris. It won't develop a huge amount if there's no testosterone. So there's basically, you know, the female developmental pathway is in fact the default reproductively. Uh, in order to kind of make a boy, you need high levels of testosterone. So when girls are exposed to high levels of testosterone, that genital tu um, tubercle can develop into something something that looks more like a penis, or it can look like a very large clitoris. But in addition to the physical effects, that testosterone gets into the brain. And we now know that it has some effects on behavior and the likelihood of the adult woman becoming a lesbian or non-heterosexual and having more male typical interests. And even before puberty, so after these, that high testosterone in utero, in utero has been normalized, and um, so the only difference between males and females or between girls who have CAH and girls who don't have CAH would be differences in the prenatal exposure to testosterone. And, and CAH girls have higher levels 
in utero. But then as little girls, they tend to show more masculine type behavior, more rough and tumble play, more interest in boys' toys. And then again, in adulthood, they're more likely to have um, gender atypical sexual preferences. And even there's a higher chance of um, a non-female gender identity, even though that's a pretty low chance to start with. So that really strongly suggests that in humans, exposure to testosterone in utero has lifelong effects on masculinizing behavior and that it's the large differences in prenatal testosterone in males that can help to explain patterns of masculine behavior. And of course, these are interacting with culture in interesting and important ways. But what I just told you is totally consistent with the experiments that we have seen results from experiments in non-human animals, where if you manipulate the testosterone environment prenatally for female animals and you give them male levels of testosterone, they will end up having male typical play patterns and um, in some cases, male typical sexual behavior. Um, So yeah, there's strong evidence that that prenatal testosterone, even in humans, can really masculinize behavior. And there's some evidence from other differences of sex development, but that's one of the most important lines of evidence. Yeah. And now we have people who want to transition their genders. And I want to remind our listeners that we do have an entire episode on uh, gender. And I love reading transgendered people's accounts because (laughs) they've seen what it's like to be, you know, both genders. And uh, I I always find it fascinating. Uh, But in your book, you you, you target what it's like to be on and off testosterone. So we get this, you know, right from people's experiences, you know, what happened to them when they've changed their levels of testosterone. Do you want to tell us a little bit about some of what they report? Yes, I would love to. And I want to just go back to the part where you were saying it was hard to understand the power of testosterone in men because we don't see it change. We can't see people going from being relatively, you know, having a much higher libido or being more physically aggressive or whatever we think of as masculine behaviors. We don't see those fluctuating as testosterone fluctuates, except what we do see is uh, we have this population of people who are changing as as part of a gender transition uh, trans, some transgender people who choose to use hormones as part of a gender transition. Not all transgender people uh, want or need to uh, change their hormone levels, but this is a powerful way of trying to achieve the, um, be more like the gender that you feel that you are, is to change your hormone levels. And in some cases, there's also surgery. But so we have really interesting evidence. And I, in my book, I interviewed a male to female, a female to to male uh, transgender people. And then I also uh, interviewed a detransitioner, which was a female person who transitioned via hormones to living as a male for a few years. And then she decided that that wasn't the right um, choice for her. And she detransitioned and went off testosterone and back to estrogen. So I got to interview them all about what those changes were like for them. I also interviewed a non-binary 12-year-old who was starting puberty blockers, who was a natal male and was then is now actually uh, going through a estrogenic puberty. So I also, as part of just talking about my work and this book, have talked to more transgender people. And I just did an interview where I got to interview three trans men. So people who had been born female or biologically female and transitioned with testosterone. 
And I, you know, did a deep dive into the scientific literature on the effects of increasing testosterone for natal females who who want to transition to living as men, and then decreasing testosterone and taking estrogen, and what those effects are. And I should just say the what the people I have spoken to personally and interviewed for my book told me they experienced is totally consistent with what I read in the literature. And there's a huge amount of variation. Not everyone who transitions experiences all of these changes, but they are what you would expect, especially in terms of sex. And this is the part that was their sex. The big changes are obviously in the physical bodies, but, um, like uh, going from uh, female to male, if you're a biological female and you take testosterone you and say you lift weights, you can get really big muscles, a hairy chest, a deep voice, a beard, a receding hairline, and nobody would know that you were biologically female. It's a little more... Um, it's a different situation going from if you've already gone through a male puberty, it's, it's a little harder to, you know, completely pass as a female because the effects of testosterone have already given you a, um, usually a deeper voice and larger than average body, et cetera. But what's interesting about these transitions is that prior to the physical changes, people experience these intense emotional and behavioral changes. And I'll say the most pronounced changes going from female to male. So if you're a woman, imagine taking male levels of testosterone and then becoming, this is, I'm not making this up. This is, I have heard this from many people at this point who tr- who did this transition. And this is trans men, again, going from uh, female to male, having a sort of going through something like a male puberty. So if you have been living as a woman for many years, and then you take testosterone, you will suddenly kind of have a view into what it's like to be a man. And when you're in that first few years of taking testosterone, everyone is described becoming obsessed with sex, obsessed with female body parts, and being more um, objectifying about the target of their sexual attraction, which in general has been uh, female. So it is a lot of um, that more and more this is happening where lesbians are transitioning uh, via testosterone. And so the the target of sexual attraction is female. And if you're a woman, you know what it's like to be sexually objectified. And it's generally not uh, what you want. And the people I spoke with said it was difficult f- that they found themselves objectifying women, staring at women's breasts, staring at women's butts, being obsessed with their body parts, and less interested, less um, feeling that the sexual attraction was less about the relationship to the woman and more about her physicality overall. And that's a wow. generalization. Yeah. And that's really, a, that kind of seems to mellow out with time. But that was what struck me the most is that people who are born female, who lived as female, who lived as women, when they take testosterone, get a sense of what it lo- is like to be a man. And they don't find it that part of it totally comfortable and they felt guilty and they resist they felt that they had to resist these um patterns these powerful patterns of attraction that for me was one of the most profound insights because it made me feel much more empathy with I don't know if empathy is actually the right word, but with men who struggle, especially adolescent boys, you know, young men who this is coming on very quickly. It's very powerful. It's overwhelming. 
And I felt, um, in a way I had never before, I felt that this is very difficult. It's not just, it's empowering and exciting, of course, and thrilling and, but it's also can be very difficult. And, um, I only had that insight because of the literature and talking to people, talking to, you know, natal females about what it's like to take testosterone and live as a man and how overwhelming those feelings were. It also makes me feel sympathy for women because this objectification that they're always talking about is spot on. <laughs> you know, like it's yes. the, the, the thing that they thought was happening to them, right? When these when some women transform into, uh, with, with testosterone, they see it from the other side. Like, yes, yes, this is exactly what we were afraid of is happening, actually is happening. But we can, you know, women are not totally innocent here. Like, the plastic surgery market having, you know, breast enhancements and butt, butt enhancements. And, um, you know, there's, it's not, I don't think women consciously, um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I, I think that we, in some sense, realize that that is what's happening and want to use it to our benefit. But on the other hand, find it extreme, can find it extremely disturbing, especially when it gets into sexual assault. But it does help me understand the origins of sexual assault. Uh, and when you objectify women and you don't consider them as full human beings, it's, and, and testosterone has also been shown to reduce empathy. Um, and again, that's probably another conversation. But I should, but actually it's not because one of the other changes that happens is a, and this is a very robust change. Although again, there's variation in this, um, in people's experiences. And they, again, at, just like puberty, people mellow out, uh, with time. Um, but the ability to access the more vulnerable emotions to, and to express the more vulnerable emotions, everyone, I think everyone I talk to, and in the literature, this is also comes out that it, that is significantly reduced when you go on testosterone. So men do cry far less than women. They uh, are less uh, fearful, um, less anxious. And these tend to be vulnerable emotions. It does seem that testosterone actually squashes these emotions um, or squashes the ability to express these emotions. And there, so people who used to cry when they were living as women, you know, say once a week or something or, or fairly easily, uh, then almost never cried after they went on testosterone and they described f having the feeling deep down, but it wouldn't come up. It wouldn't, it wouldn't manifest in tears. It wouldn't be. I relate to that so well. I will sometimes feel the need to cry and I yes. just can't make it happen. And it's, and I never saw it as well articulated as I did by that person who reported it in your book. About like there's a like like there's a buffer. It comes up and it just doesn't make it to the eyes. I think that's what they said. No, and that's great for me as a totally crying. I'm a you know I tear up like every day, and I I find it embarrassing. So I was really interested in testosterone and crying and emotionality. Um, and I think it's interesting from an evolutionary point of view, just thinking about reproduction and male-male competition, you want to be roaring, you want to have big antlers, you want to be intimidating, you don't want to be tearing up and scared. So if testosterone is doing that uh, to men, it makes total evolutionary sense. And women need to be, you know, it, female animals who are 
parenting and must be in tune with their offspring, they're going to need a different set of uh, different way of expressing their emotions. So it's not that men aren't having them, but the interesting thing is that they're not expressing them, which for many women can be a frustration in heterosexual relationships. Right. But this again was like a light going off for me in my marriage. <laughs> like I, I'm married to a British guy who, you know, the Brits to start with are less emotional. Um, and I, again, with the sex and the emotionality, just understanding what testosterone was actually doing in humans, not just um, in non-human animals. To me, looking at that transgender literature and talking to people who had gone through it was, yeah, life-changing, I would say, in a pretty profound way. Yeah. Yeah. And I can recommend, I can recommend Carol's book. Um, I mean, it's great in many ways, but just for reading those accounts, it, it's worth getting. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, all right. So moving on, let's. So we also have what we might call natural experiments in humans, where, or maybe, well, I don't know if they're natural, but people have been castrated for various reasons at different points, and those also have predictable effects. Uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, what we're talking about is essentially uh, a form of castration if we're talking about going from male to female in transgender people. So we have that whole, um, all of those people who are going through that are basically, they're taking estrogen. So they're not, you know, chemically castrated, but they are uh, basically turning off their testosterone and, and taking estrogen. So everything I just described, just turn that upside down for thinking about going from um, male to female and becoming more emotional, having a reduced libido, etc. So that all is basically reversed um, in, go in transitioning in the other direction. But then we have people who actually are castrated. So there's there's a lot of different ways to talk about this. There are um, like one of the treatments for prostate cancer is basically chemical castration. So having high testosterone exacerbates the growth of um, prostate cancer. And so the treatment is to reduce that. And there is, a, a, I should just give a plug to um, The Virility Paradox, which is a book by Charles Ryan. And he is a doctor who treats pr prostate cancer. And the book is about what the changes are in the men he treats and, and looking at that in the larger literature. And he finds basically, again, what you would expect in um, when his patients who can be, you know, come in and they're very vigorous and competitive and muscular and sexual and, and then they have to block their testosterone sometimes for the rest of their lives. So it's really interesting what the way that um, he reports on what some of those changes are. And he says they soften, not just physically, but emotionally. And this can really sometimes enrich their relationships and they can get in touch with parts of themselves they didn't know existed. And so that's one kind of castration. Another kind of castration I talk about in the book is castration kind of throughout history. And one example I give is um, the eunuchs of ancient China. And there's some, uh, and I also talk about um, the castrati who are castrated to maintain their uh, high voices in Italian Vatican choirs. And, but the results are basically the same. So if you're castrated prior to puberty, your voice never deepens. For one thing, you don't develop, uh, a, you know, much upper body musculature as you would if you were intact. The uh, libido really never develops to kind of male levels. If you cast, if you're castrated in adulthood, what's very interesting 
interesting is that there is variance in the retention of libido. But for the most part, if you castrate a man in adulthood, his libido will completely tank. Uh, but some people are able to retain somewhat of a libido. So it sounds like you've got an idea of what the general function of testosterone is. Do you think that could be summarized or is it just too complicated? No, it's not. It's easy. So the, thank God there's something in science. No, that's it's easy. easy. I think it's simple. And that's like the beauty of evolutionary biology is when you look at things through an evolutionary lens, there can be such clarity and deep explanatory power and sex hormones. So I'll just say from an evolutionary point of view, we are designed to convert energy that we get from the environment into offspring. That's what we're designed to do. We obviously have to survive and stay healthy, but the sex hormones, testosterone in particular, helps males convert energy into offspring as efficiently as possible. Like end of story. It's, it's a reproductive hormone. The way that that works is entirely or heavily dependent on the environment. And in humans, that includes culture. So doing that efficiently in some cultures will require physical aggression. In other cultures, it requires being the president of your company, um, or being good at chess or, or, um, you know, it, it completely depends. So testosterone will promote in general, whatever works in a given environment, in a given species. So a natural question seems to come up though, if testosterone is so helpful for male reproduction, then why hasn't there been an, like an evolutionary arms race for ever higher levels of it? Well, in a sense there has been, but uh, because we, you know, Westerners who have a lot of energy in our environment use a lot of that energy to uh, increase our testosterone levels and to grow to a larger body size and have more muscle mass for instance. Uh, so in that sense there is some evidence that it's a bit of an arms race. However, there's also pressure in the opposite direction. So in the book I write about um, song sparrows because there are very clear experiments showing in song sparrows where you have biparental care, meaning the chicks need the um, male and female, as is the case in many birds, to care for them uh, for in order for them to survive. The female is usually going to be sitting on the nest and protecting the birds, and the male will be out all day working to get food for the kids. He's just flying back and forth, back and forth with worms or insects or whatever. However, his testosterone declines when those, uh, when he's pair bonded and when his kids, when his little chicks are born because lower testosterone helps him be a good dad. If you raise the testosterone on that dad who's supposed to be taking care of his kids, his kids will die because he is out aggressing with other males and trying to find mates. So what's interesting, and you might say, okay, well, that's songbirds, uh, song sparrows, who cares? Well, you should care because there are similar patterns that have been found in other species. So in mammals, I should just say only 5% of, in only 5% of mammals do males invest in taking care of their kids, invest in parenting. And in humans, some males invest and some males don't. But investment is a way to increase your reproductive success. So having a lot of, so it doesn't always increase reproductive success to be a big aggressive male. First of all, you might get your ass kicked. You might die. Um, second of all, you might abandon, you might never um, find a long-term mate you, because you are always out aggressing with other males and looking for new mates. But it's not necessarily aggressing with other males physically. You might always just be competing and trying to get more and more resources and more and more mates. And that's not always a good strategy because you could lose. If you pair up with one 
one female as a male and you're a good dad, you can have a very strong, you know, reproductive record, at least from a if you think about natural fertility societies, if we didn't have birth control, and that's how you should be thinking about this, how that's the environment in which uh, that we're adapted to, you would be uh, pretty successful, potentially, even more so than if you're out on the open mating market, you're not taking care of your kids, you're always fighting for new mates, you might just be a loser in that sense. So the lower testosterone reproductive strategy, it's still a male level of testosterone, right? It's you're not getting down to female levels, but you're testosterone is slightly depressed when you need to be paired and loyal and investing in your kids rather than aggressing and having sex with lots of other females. Um, that can be an excellent reproductive strategy. So there is something to be said for monogamy. There is something to be said for investing in your kids. And um, that can be promoted by a little bit lower testosterone. Also, having higher testosterone can um, inhibit immune function. So it's an energetic expenditure. And we don't really see it because we're in such a well-nourished environment, but in environments that are more like the one that we're best adapted to, um, there would have been, you know, scarce resources and we didn't have all of the food and energy availability that we have now. So you'd have to make trade-offs about where your energy is invested. Are you going to invest it in growth and maintenance or reproduction? So if you have really high testosterone, that's going to then, um, you're more vulnerable to heart disease, your uh, immune system can suffer and, you know, you might have a higher pathogen load and you don't want that. So there are trade-offs, um, physical and in terms of just overall reproductive success. You want your testosterone at some optimal level for your health and your reproductive fitness. And that's not always, you know, high testosterone is not always good. So you made it pretty clear that males and females have different reproductive strategies. And for men, you might say the bottleneck of more reproduction is getting the sperm and getting access to females. Uh, and that can lead to aggression. But are men really more aggressive than women? They are more, that's a good question. That's great. Females, as we know, can be extremely aggressive, um, but not physically. So some females, yes, are, are very physically aggressive. But when you're talking about behaviors that risk your own health or your own life, your own physical self that puts yourself at physical risk. That is not adaptive in general for especially female mammals whose reproductive success is a function of their health and longevity. Generally, they will not have trouble finding mates. What they need to worry about is being healthy and having the physical resources they need to grow and nurture and care for their children. So it is not generally beneficial for them to risk their physical health or safety to compete for mates. What they can do is disparage the reputation of other women who might be potential mates for desirable males. Uh, and we see that now we see it on social media in ways that can be extremely painful for um, other girls. There's a lot of female-female uh, competition, but it tends to be um, competition, again, that is more passive, where it's it's indirect competition. You're not going right up to somebody's face and, and screaming at them or threatening them physically. So females excel at indirect competition, and it tends to be more psychological and kind of backstabbing, I hate to say. Um, and males are more likely to use more direct forms of competition uh, that do put themselves physically at risk, or where they're just confronting someone in a very direct and aggressive way, even verbally. Females are less likely to do that. And then you so you have male male competition, female female competition, 
Uh, but when it comes again to, you know, murder, uh, sexual assault, et cetera, men win hands down. There's, there's just no contest there. Uh, but I would say overall, there is not a sex difference in aggression. There is a large sex difference in physical, you know, extreme physical aggression. The style of aggression differs. But not perhaps not the amount, right? Okay, so we we, we learned that uh, testosterone increases in men during puberty, um, and it is relatively stable over time compared to red deer, for example. Right. But um, can it can the immediate environment affect your testosterone levels, like in a particular situation, like a tense situation? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's true for men, but it's also true for some species of non-human animals. If you think about dominance interactions among men or among red deer or among chimpanzees, for instance. Uh, the two males will confront each other, and that confrontation can be very subtle. It could be something that you don't even notice. It could just be the way men look at each other, their body postures, their tone of voices, interrupting, etc. It could be a football game. It could be a chess game. Anything where status, where male status is at risk, can be considered some sort of competition. And we have neurochemical adaptations and changes that happen within our bodies that regulate the way we respond to those competitions, which can involve threat. So a threat to status, right? Even if it's just a chess game, if your whole community is obsessed with chess, and if your status will rise if you win a game, then that could elicit these um, kinds of physiological changes that will, again, tend to promote your um, ability to achieve status, uh, but also to survive so that you could achieve status later. So there are testosterone changes that happen in some of these circumstances that seem to reinforce men's uh, desire to compete in um, future potentially aggressive or competitive encounters. So the pattern is where where it is found is that two men going into competition where they both feel that status is actually on the line, they would have a short-term rise in their testosterone and the loser would experience a decline, a sharp decline in testosterone. And we see this very clearly in some non-human species where it's clear that that drop in testosterone causes the animal to behave like a loser the next time, which is adaptive for that animal. So it's an averse, that losing is an aversive experience and that drop in testosterone seems to condition the animal to respond to future threats with fear and anxiety uh, because that will help them stay alive so that they might be able to compete later. The one who emerges as dominant, whether it's a physical or non-physical uh, competition, the winner would have an in would have a, the testosterone level stay high. And it seems that this is then reinforcing to that individual that it's pleasurable. It might even result in a dopamine uh, upregulation in dopamine, um, which is a neurotransmitter that can reinforce uh, motivation. And so that there would be a positive association with confronting threat in the future. And this is really interesting because it does seem that testosterone changes can condition animals to make kind of rapid decisions about how to respond to threats in the future in ways that tend to be adaptive over time. And we see this in hu really clearly in um, some situations, not all competitive situations in human and non-human animals. So we've got these short-term changes in testosterone that are environmentally and socially contingent. So it's not just testosterone acting on, you know, 
shaping behavior that impacts the environment, it's very clear that the social and, you know, ecological and other aspects of the environment affect testosterone levels in the long term as we see when, like, kids are born, testosterone can go down, and that can be a long-term change, for instance, but we also see that it can respond more rapidly to shorter-term social situations in ways that can uh, condition behavior to be adaptive in the future. So it's got these long-term consequences uh, and reactions and shorter-term ones. Okay, so we've, we've talked about a lot of reasons, converging evidence of testosterone's behavioral effects, but at the same time, there seem to be a lot of books out there that disagree with you about testosterone. You want to comment on, I mean, what, what their position is? Um, yes, there are a series of books that not, and I should just say it's a, you can have a macro view on these books, which is they, they are, the authors are arguing against the important in the, what I would say is a profound influence of biological genetic uh, forces on human behavior. And of which testosterone is just one example. That's right. And testosterone is just one example. But the idea seems to be that in order to to promote certain kinds of just social justice, you know, like equality between the sexes in particular, we must deny the existence of, say, um, sex differences in the brain or uh, the import, the, that there really are even sex different, big sex differences in testosterone level, or we should downplay the significance of testosterone in our behavior. Now, I cannot speak for these mostly women who write these books and, and have these views, because um, I think they would say, no, they're just um, using a critical lens to kind of reevaluate the sci- the current science, which they see as biased right. by, you know, mostly men doing the science or biased somehow by the patriarchy. But um, I, my view, so what I try to do in the book is push back on the science, you know, really not to criticize anyone for their motives. I do a little bit, but I do do a little bit of speculation about motives because I think there is something here to be explained, which is what I see is extreme sort of unwarranted skepticism about pretty solid science about um, the role of biology, specifically testosterone in sex differences in behavior. And to me, it seems that there is a fear that this information will be used to maintain the status quo with men basically in power or, you know, the patriarchy. Not only could it be used to maintain the status quo and to legitimize, say, sexual assault or male dominance or power structures. Um, But I think there's also a fear that if something is genetic, which sex differences in testosterone largely are, but it's only by, you know, a couple of genes, basically one gene, um, that... um, that it means that these sex differences, especially the ones that we consider problematic, can't be changed. And that's not true. Like, neither of those things are true. I think that their main theory is the socialization theory, that pe- men and women have apparent differences because of the way they're socialized. But, I mean, it does seem to be clear that the solution to a problem that is generated with socialization is a clearer path than a problem that has a biological 
Every complex behavior, patterns of complex behavior are always in any organism, the result of gene environment interactions. So if you, and I always give the same example because this is the one I use in my book, but the rates of uh, male violence and sexual assault vary tremendously by culture, right? So Singapore has very, very low levels because the laws are incredibly strict. The punishments are pretty severe. There are cultural norms, there are laws, and those are very powerful, but they are necessary to restrain those aspects of male behavior. If you did not have that culture, like in India, um, you will have much higher rates if males are given total freedom to... um, express those, uh, I would say, some of those darker sides of their natures, they in most cases will do it if you look around the world. And so we know what what makes a difference is, to me, is understanding the root of these sex differences so we can have the greatest insight into the cultural changes that we need to make to create a more equal society. It is a huge mistake to close our minds off to any knowledge that of about reality that would help us understand the origins of behavior generally and also it's just fun and interesting but especially when we want to make people safer we ha- want to have a more just world we want more sex equality we really do want to understand how is testosterone shaping behavior do we have different brains do we have different predispositions given that should we expect there to be total sex equality in people who work in coal mines or who, who do physics or um, do coding and and want to work in engineering. You know, I think we can strive for equality of opportunity, strive for a you know, safe and just world, but we also want to know what reality is. And if there are predispositions that are shaped by, by biology, we should know about that. And then we should figure out how we can use culture you know, to achieve those positive goals. And you don't have to deny the power of biology to do that. Well, what's interesting is that I kind of, that's surprising to hear you say that because what's what's interesting is that you agree with your critics in that you think the solution to many of these problems involving aggression, for example, is cultural. Well, because it certainly can't be biological. Like we can't castrate men. Well, I mean, I, we, we, we wouldn't, but it's, it's not as though long-term biological changes to humanity are off the table completely. Well, okay, but that what would happen if we did castrate men? I think we would lose a lot of what we don't we know. Love. Well, I wouldn't want my husband castrated. I like him the way he is, and I want a strong... I, I like having a strong, <laughs> strong, tall husband who isn't an emotional basket case. I appreciate that, but I'm, I, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that the, with future possible biological engineering, we might be able to make humanity biologically more in line with our values rather than what evolution just happened to hand us, right? I mean, that might not be feasible now. Yeah, no, that's kind of a scary prospect, but that wouldn't be off the table for me. But that's not on the table now. What is on the table is education and social norms and laws and customs. You know, to me, that works. Those changes work, and we know it because we have these uh, such extreme cultural 
cultural differences. But we also know that those kinds of, or some kinds of cultural norms are absolutely necessary to restrain, again, those dar- darker aspects of our natures. And we should learn about how that works without denying reality. That's just never a good idea, in it's, my view. It's interesting that um, many people, especially in the humanities, are resistant to these evolutionarily, evolutionary and biological explanations for behavior, except when it comes to sexual orientation. Well, right, because they want to validate biological origins of behaviors or identities that they want to support. So they're just sort of picking and choosing. Uh, and I don't, you know, again, it shouldn't matter, like, from my point of view, it doesn't matter whether something is biological or environmentally, you know, it's always both, basically, but um, induced, but especially with sexual orientation, it's obvious now that there's a very strong um, biological component. But it wouldn't make one iota of difference to me whether it was because of some circumstances that happened early in an individual's environment. You know, that should not impact how we, the ethics or, you know, how we um, judge morally the behavior or identity of somebody, right? We should, that should be completely distinct from our judgments. And um, the same thing is true about, say, sexual assault. It just doesn't matter if there's a strong biological component. It's something we need to regulate. We want to figure out how to do that in the best way possible. Yeah. You know, one problem I've always had with the cultural, like the pure cultural, the pure socialization theories, is that they're maybe consistent with a lot of what we see, but they don't predict very little in the way that we would want a scientific theory to. Human men and women differ in many ways that would be predicted by what we see happening in other species. But like, Carol, do you have any idea? Like, What is the socialization explanation for why these behaviors that we see, these differences we see, would be replicated by culture? Like, it's what we would predict by biology, but these people are saying the culture is doing exactly what biology would have done. Is that do they think it's just a coincidence or do they not talk about yeah, it? Yeah. So thank you for making my argument for me. I almost don't need to say anything. You just said it so beautifully. Um, but <laughs> well, I think that they there is now an acknowledgement that although not everyone acknowledges this, that our biology influences our bodies. I think the argument is something like, well, testosterone gives men a penis and muscles and a large body size basically, you know, doesn't do anything in the brain. And since having a large body size uh, and being stronger than women, and because women um, are the ones who have to do the childbearing, that's what allows and sort of reinforces patriarchy and all of these various behaviors like, say, male control of female sexuality is made possible by those circumstances. So that biology is important, but not because it has direct actions on the, uh, say, testosterone has direct actions on the brain. I don't think that the critics of the science that I think is pretty robust and that I talk about in my book, I don't think the those critics engage with the argument that you just made in a serious way. And of course, that's what I would like to see happen is just evaded. Um, because I don't think there's a good answer. I think the answer is no, we're animals like any other animal, except we live in this really complex culture, which is gendered. And that's what we have to deal with is like, yeah, it, it is gendered, but that the way that it's gendered doesn't come out of a vacuum. You know, it has something to do with our human natures and that culture is important. And, uh, but it's obviously interacting with our genes in interesting ways. 
We've been speaking to Dr. Carol Hooven, author of the new book, T, the story of testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us. And I want to thank my man, Darren McKee, over at the Reality Check podcast, who recommended this book to me. Um, you can find links to buy the book in the show notes at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. Dr. Hooven, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as it will help make our podcast more visible to potential listeners. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.